Welcome to the first episode of Practically Abstract, the podcast that explores the relationship between philosophy, design, and ethics. By looking at where people's understanding of reality comes from, we hope to learn even more about why things are as they are, how to live a good life, and maybe even make the world a better place. Wow, talk about overpromising. How about if we just start by introducing ourselves? Always the pragmatist, Chris. Fine, let's do it. And now your hosts for the inaugural episode of Practically Abstract, Arturo Perez and Chris Chandler. I grew up in South America in a world where God, mysticism, ghosts, and spirits seem to be everywhere in my day-to-day life. In university, I got mentoring classical philosophy, originally sparked when my professor spoke of platonic transcendentals in class. This concept seemed to articulate something I was obsessively seeking after in myself. I fell in love with Plato, Aristotle, and Thomas Aquinas, who teach about virtue ethics and the balance between faith and reason. I think of these guys as designers and see Thomistic influence as a design brief that helped to create Baroque music and Gothic cathedrals. In a world of skeptics building technology, like my partner, I often wonder how such a brief in which God and supernatural things are recent first principles could affect today's increasingly automated and artificial world. When I am not theorizing about the value of transcendence, I run Kluge, a design firm that helps B2B companies. It keeps me grounded, to say the least. Well, my approach is a little bit different. My mother is a professional philosopher. And in fact, when my parents first met at a fraternity party, the thing that they connected on was that they were both philosophy majors and atheists. So you might say to me, philosophy is kind of a genetic condition. I work at a firm called philosophy. So although I would never say it out loud and definitely not in front of my mother, I could also be considered a professional philosopher. Personally, my philosophical status is set to, it's complicated. I'm a card-carrying member of the ancient philosophical school of skepticism. My chief influences are Socrates, Hume, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Derrida, and Rorty. Like most skeptics, I am also ironically a pragmatist, because in practice, even though I try to relentlessly question my own assumptions, you still have to accomplish everyday tasks in real life. Although I've always believed in the value of thinking philosophically to my professional practice, after all, if we don't know why we're doing the things we're doing, how will we know how to get better? However, I have noticed over the course of my career that most people's eyes glaze over three sentences into a conversation about Kant's critique of pure reason. That is, until I met Arturo, and thus the podcast was born. Today we're here to talk to Kenneth Bowles and bring our different perspectives into this conversation. Over a 15-year career, Kenneth has written two popular books, been a design manager at Twitter, and helped to pioneer the British experience design scene. Kenneth's focus is on the ethics of emerging technology. His new book, Future Ethics, has been called one of the most important books a designer could ever read. He's presented on the topic at Microsoft, Dropbox, Google, Hulu, Facebook, and IBM. Today, he joins us for a thoughtful conversation. Thank you for uh, joining us, Kenneth, on our first episode. I um, want to hear a little bit about your background. How, how does a designer come to write about ethics? Tell us a little bit about your journey. Mm, sure thing. So let's see. I'm uh, an interaction designer, product designer by trade. Um, I've 
got about 15 years experience in the field now and I've worked for a variety of dot-coms, startups, government agencies and then um, my most recent permanent role was at Twitter where I was a design manager in London for uh, three years or so. How I got into ethics, I think sometimes people expect that there was some moment of, of kind of Damascene conversion where I suddenly was reviled by what I saw in the industry and felt I had to do something about it. And it wasn't really that clear cut. It wasn't there. There wasn't some blinding flash of of truth involved. It's a topic that I've always been interested in. And I was actually giving talks going back many years now. And I was introduced at one event and one, my introducer said, well, one thing I like about Kenneth's talks is that he always has this ethical angle. And I was like, D- do I? I didn't really realize that I was uh, doing that. And when I left Twitter, I didn't have to rush into the next job. I had a bit of money saved up and I had you know, the luxury of, sort of being able to cherry pick the clients I wanted. And it felt like the right time to try and dedicate some time to this subject, something that I was interested in, but I didn't have a proper grounding in. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to do it now, then when am I? It feels like something the industry needs. Uh, and it feels like something that would enrich my practice as well. So that's why I took the time to read, uh, you know, all these uh, philosophy papers and textbooks and things like that, uh, to try and get a better understanding of that topic. So it's, it's a certain amount of luxury of being in the right place at the right time, but also getting to that point in uh, one's career where you start to question, well, is this actually what I want to do? Am I having the impact, impact and the influence that I would like to have? And if not, how can I try and change that? That's great. How, so it's one thing to say that you've got, uh, you've always had an ethical uh, component to your work uh, and obviously a philosophical bent, but uh, what, what prompted you to decide to write this book? I wish I could remember who it was, um, but there's this, uh, there's this saying that you should always uh, write a book from whose absence you suffer. And I think when I was trying to understand this topic better, I, I was struck by how little there was written for people like me, for people in technology practice who wanted to get to grips with what was happening in that field without having to wade through Heidegger and Kant and, you know, whoever else we may choose to to name here. And so I saw there was an opportunity that I could try and translate between the worlds of philosophy and philosophy of tech and STS, science, technology studies, and practice. And so I thought, well, I know what it's like inside these companies. I know the trade-offs and compromises that are made. I understand design practice and the product development process. So perhaps I can be a conduit between these two worlds. So it was really identifying that gap. I mean, there are fine books written about this, of course, but none of them really quite filled that that spot. So, you know, you write the book that you really wish you'd had five, seven, ten years ago before you even recognised that this was a gap in your knowledge. So that's what I'm trying to do for the rest of the community. Who who would you say is the audience for this book, Kenneth? I've... I thought about that before I wrote, and if I had a primary persona, then it's probably senior designers and product managers within decent-sized tech companies. By decent, I mean anything, a couple of hundred employees and up, maybe. I actually think it's those folks, the senior practitioners and the principal designers and principal PMs, up to middle management, uh, maybe senior manager, director level, who have... I think, in aggregate, the largest ethical power within a tech firm. It's not actually, I don't think, the leadership. I think most of the ethical decisions are taken somewhere in the middle. And so I think it's those folk who really 
um, would benefit from understanding what's happening in this field and, and finding ways to bring that way of thinking into their work. So that's my sort of primary um, reader, if you like. I am finding there's a lot of appetite for it in uh, academia. Um, you know, people not not within philosophy departments, but within computer science departments. Um, that's perhaps a discussion we can have later about education. Um, but I was certainly aware that that could be something useful to those folks as well, trying to teach the next round, if you like, the next generation of practitioners, trying to teach them some of these fundamentals as well. Uh, so yeah, probably those two are my, my largest at the moment. And that seems to be borne out in the sort of people who are buying and enjoying the book. What we find so fascinating about you and uh, that resonates with both of us is, and what we're hoping to do in this podcast is to find that balance of practice and theory. Um, that right. you know that that you're a practitioner, we're practitioners. So um, maybe uh, talk a little bit about that. Like, what is the value of the theory and the practice, and what are sort of the highlights from the theoretical frameworks that you bring to bear? I think the tech industry has it's frustrating because it's so intelligent, but it's so anti-intellectual. You know, there's this um, framing. Frankly, the way that we look at academics at the moment is. If they're data scientists or computer scientists, then we just steal them from faculty, right? We just, you know, the big companies will just take them en masse, give them enormous pay rises, and then set them to work somewhere in, in you know, in Silicon Valley. But we've often looked at the rest of academia, so humanities, uh, social sciences, philosophy, um, skeptically, and said, well, what's the practical value of these people? Because we're so, it, we're so inculcated yeah, with the idea that we have to focus on delivery and output and so on. And we look at those folks and say, well, what's their delivery? What do they add to the product development process? And I think that's such a shame and it's such an oversight because there are people who've been looking at this issue for, you know, I mean, decades, um, specifically the philosophy of technology. But of course, uh, moral philosophy, ethics, there's, you know, there's a couple of millennia of history of that. And we have this weird belief that we be, that we feel we should solve things from first principles that we are beta testing a unique future uh, as technologists and so therefore we can't possibly learn anything from these people because they don't understand technology they don't understand what it's like to ship product man and it's nonsense you know these people have been watching us run into the same walls again and again for decades and you know, they were sort of head in the hand saying, why won't you just ask our opinions? Um, and when I started doing my research into this, I was blown away by the depth and the quality of the research and the knowledge and the conversation that's happening in academia. It's so far ahead of the conversation that's happening in practice. And it completely changed my perspectives on, well, pretty much my entire, uh, you know, career. But um I see it as terrifically important to try and make those connections, to act as a conduit to help those two worlds understand each other better. So I'm particularly interested in some of the conversations that are happening right now about, obviously, the AI ethics field is particularly robust on, uh, you know, on Twitter and, uh, you know, in, in, in real academia as well as just these frivolous communication channels like Twitter. Um, but also the conversations that are happening now around um, atten the attention economy, uh, what that means for privacy, what it means for um, the integrity of human lives, for free will, for, you know, all these sorts of questions around 
when do we become when do we cease to be autonomous individuals um so pretty much there are a number of different topics within ethics and so the point of the book is i've tried to align one chapter per each of these topics so we have one around persuasion we have one around uh, environmental issues we have one around um i'm calling it sort of mundane ai everyday ai and then one around the far future super intelligence in each of those there is a thriving community so there is a there is a host of uh discussion and theory that's starting to emerge there that i've tried to draw in uh through my work do you think it's possible that um these academics and more theoretically minded uh people can come into the discussion without without translation or is it is it going to need um, these sort of hybrid mediators like yourself, um, can there be direct communication, essentially? I think there can. You know, <laughs> with no disrespect intended to academics, they, they're particularly good at talking to academics. They, you know, their, their linguistic practices are, you know, orientated at academia and, you know, saying the right things for publication and speaking in that particular tone of voice that gets them citations and, and all that sort of stuff. There's increasing focus though on impact now isn't there within academia they, you know the purse string holders are wanting to see that research is actually having an effect within society so i think that's an important lever and i think there are some academics who are recognizing that the impact they desire in practice means that they have to have a slightly different approach and some of them are just particularly skilled or maybe they've even done some time you know in tech companies but some of them have newsletters, podcasts, Patreons, that kind of thing, that are much more accessible to, uh, you know, tech folk, regular uh, tech workers. And those people are fantastic and we should embrace them. We should read their books. We should pay them. We should try to get them in, in, you know, inside our companies, even just for visits or talks or something like that. The Some of the real heavy stuff is, yeah, it's going to be less easily accessible to practitioners. But... Again, people like me, I can try and act as a conduit, but we also have to try and make the effort. You know, we're smart people. We we shouldn't be afraid of sitting down and reading a couple of, you know, scientific or academic papers. It takes a little bit of practice getting used to some of the terminology, but it's absolutely within our reach. So we shouldn't just wait for academia to adapt their approaches to us. We should also take positive steps to try and engage better with their work as well, because the rewards of doing so are, you know, are rich. You recently got back from uh, your first book tour where, where you got a little bit of a chance to test these heady ideas onto the market. <laughs> and, I, and I know you, you talked to different technology companies. What, what are some of the, the key takeaways you got from, from those visits? It's perhaps a little early for me to say there were clear patterns. Um, I, I went into maybe, was it about a dozen companies, something like that. And what I'm seeing at the moment is everyone's doing it slightly differently or everyone has, everyone, rec- well, first off, everyone recognizes there's a problem. I mean, that's okay. There's a selection bias here that they've invited me in to talk to their team about ethics. So they clearly recognize ethics is an issue, but they don't have a playbook. They don't have uh, an agreed set of approaches. We don't know yet whether we should have, say, a chief ethics officer or individual contributors, design ethicists. Do you need, do you need to hire someone? Uh, do you need a separate team for that? Who's who's responsible ultimately for these kind of things? So there aren't any set approaches, but there is strong appetite. And I'm seeing particularly desi- designers as the biggest vector for this conversation at the moment. It seems to be the designers who are attuned to these issues and who recognize that there's more to be done around that topic. That's a great start. I think designers can be a good vector, but I really want the product managers to start saying these sorts of things as well. 
Yeah, so the the one constant I found is the inconstancy, is the is the variability in the approach, but that shared appetite to say, okay, what do we do? Because it's quite clear we've made some mistakes as a as a field. Can you help us uh, figure out what's next? So, yeah, with luck, maybe I can. But it's going to take me, you know, many more months or years to understand well what's actually working in these companies and what's not working, and then we can start to draw up frameworks for okay, well, how do we resource this properly? How do we approach it properly? Um, there's going to be a bunch of trial and error required before that happens. Are you finding appetite for theory in these conversations, or is it more like, what is the toolkit that I can use to resolve this ethical problem? Not much appetite for theory, to be honest. You know what the tech industry is like. They, you know, we want quick fixes. We want, oh, just give me the checklist. Just give me the, um, you know, what are the top 10 things I need to do? And there is a little bit of appetite for theory, but among the enlightened is probably the wrong word because that sounds a bit sort of pejorative to the rest but those who've dived a little bit deeper into this topic recognize that there's something we can learn from outside the field but at the moment it's still very much very much tactics and you know sort of organizational infrastructure rather than knowledge building so that's an area i'm going to try and focus on to say you know (laughs) Yeah, sure, we can do the surface-level tactics. We can, in our critique processes, we can ask some important ethical questions. But let's try and learn from the wider field here. Let's not be, um, you know, let's not be so ignorant as to believe, as I said before, that we're solving these things from first principles. Let's actually listen to the folks who are ahead of us. So I think the theory aspect may have to be stoked a little bit. And again, that's what I've tried to do with the book is, you know, there's plenty of theory in there, but I've tried to sneak it in a way that's accessible enough that it doesn't seem like you're reading a philosophy textbook, right? So there are approaches to get that stuff across. Um, I'm not seeing companies cry out for it yet, but hopefully that'll change in time. One of the things uh, I particularly enjoyed about your book, and I, I mentioned it already about the, the that you're really bringing the practical focus. Um, so I'm, I'm you know, as far as like high level takeaways and frameworks, you know, what, what, what do you think a designer or a product manager, you know, what do you hope they take away from the book that they're going to bring to their work? Uh, well, that's quite a, there's quite a lot in that. Um, for me, perhaps the main lesson is that right now, a lot of people are asking at what point, what levers do I pull within the process, right? Do I need to address it in critique? Do I need to address it in hiring? Do I need to address it in the design phase? And the answer to me at the moment is yes, let's let's try all of those things. There are a range of op- opportunities in front of us. There are a number of levers we can pull to try and uh, address our ethical responsibilities. Right now, let's give them all a go and see which ones have the largest effects. So there are some people who uh, would rather have conversations around things like micro interactions or dark patterns or misleading interfaces things like that that's a totally valid conversation an important conversation to be happening there are also people who are asking very broad questions such as um, what is the ethics of capitalism is it possible to still be a you know high profit making organization and still be ethical and do we need to realign our expectations around those that's an entirely valid conversation to have as well and it's important that we spend some time uh, thinking hard about those those questions. So for me, I think there are so many different approaches, so many different points within the product development process that we can apply ethics. My my answer is really go for them all. However, if we're after a particular, maybe an easy vector, like the first starting point, I think critique is probably the 
easiest entry point for that kind of discussion. And we've already seen some folks saying things like uh, the designated dissenter. This comes from Eric, Eric Meyer and San, uh, Sarah Wachtabecha. Um The idea of throwing in this these constructive grenades of defiance, if you like, in the critique process and saying, well, I'm going to challenge and subvert and uh, undermine some of your assumptions as a team so that we can have proper ethical conversations uh, around that. So uh, there are, as I say, particular particular points of influence. Um, I'm keen on them all, but maybe critique is the the easiest point to begin that discussion. From a from a more meta point of view, uh, my my question to you is about potentially the idea of bracketing uh, your own bias. You know the, the role of your own bias uh, in the communication of this book. So I I think in general you did an excellent job uh, in the early chapters of. Uh, performing sort of an objective authorial uh, point of view. Uh, you're, you're at pains, I think, to, you know, here's, here's one framework, here's another framework, here's one way to look at it, you know, to talk about uh, all the different ways that people could come at this. Um, but there's a couple of points where I could, I could spot uh, what, what I thought of as your political point of view. And it's and it's not until later in the book when you when you reveal a little bit more about where you're coming from. I, I just wanted, you know, to get your opinion about sort of what, why you made those choices or what. Hmm. And the, and I it's almost I feel compelled to ask this question in 2018, right? If we were having this conversation a couple of years ago, it may not have seemed as critical to me, but mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time wondering, right? Uh, you know, am, am I in a bubble? You know, what would somebody who has a very different political point of view from me think about this conversation? And, I, you know, so just just would love to hear your thoughts on, on the choices that you made for this book. It was a an intentional decision to essentially to slow play it a little bit, to open the book by saying, well, there are a number of frames of reference for ethics, right? You can be a deontologist, you can be a utilitarian, you can be a virtue ethicist. Uh, you know, those are but three. There are other perspectives you can take. I'm keen to equip people with the knowledge to make their own decisions. Now, there are a number of people in the tech ethics field who are a bit more, not necessarily radical, but they, you know, opinionated and quite forceful, I think, with those opinions. And sometimes that's helpful, and I think sometimes it's not. I think some folks do that better than others. But I wanted to get to a point where I'd explained, well, there are a number of ways to, to look at this problem, a number of lenses we can use, before then showing my hand and say, well, actually, for me, this is the one that convinces me the most. Uh, Because of the scarcity of knowledge in our field about this topic, that felt the most uh, useful approach that I could take, is just to say, well, here are the, you know, here's the equipment, and then here's how we might apply it. As you point out later in the book, I feel because I've got enough of a scaffold there saying, okay, well, you now understand these different approaches, actually, here's the one I find convincing, and I'm not convinced by this. And then, of course, that also leads into, into some broader, uh, you know, political questions as well. Um, without getting too far into the sort of political weeds here, my politics is pretty radical. I'm I'm wary, and partly because I'm British, but I'm wary of, I don't want my work to be seen as political ranting. I think ethics should be non-partisan. It should be something that, whatever your political views, you believe is important. And 
if I came on too strong with the, you know, with the, the political stuff saying overthrow this or, you know, do this, do that, uh, etc., then that diminishes my message, I think. It diminishes the utility of ethics in that conversation or the perceived utility. It helps people to dismiss ethics as just, oh, you're just ranting, you're just, you know, it's just anti-capitalist ranting or it's pro-market ranting or whatever it might be. And that would that would squander the opportunity we've got ahead of us. Now, don't get me wrong, there is absolutely a space for anti-capitalist ranting. There is absolutely a space for pro-market ranting. There is a space for free speech ranting, so long as, you know, none of those are out and out harmful. But it just didn't feel like the right time or place for me to go too heavy in that. That may change over the coming months and years. If the conversation gets a bit more sophisticated and I feel more comfortable that I can, uh, you know, pin my colours to a mask, then perhaps I will. But I didn't want to lead off with that. That that didn't feel like a um, a good way to begin that conversation or to or to put my own stake into that conversation. Great explanation. Like I said, it's almost embarrassing to ask the question, right? But in this day and age, you know, I couldn't I couldn't help asking myself a couple times. Well, isn't this just what a social justice warrior would say? I mean, there would be some that would use that label to talk about me. I think those people are probably idiots, but um, you know, fine. Yeah, I'm I'm proud to believe in the ideas of social justice. I, you know, I, I make no apologies for that. But I try not to let some of the political associations with that cloud what I can offer at the moment. I think um, I want people to be able to read my book and disagree with it, but not close it not give up on it because they think, oh, you know, this is just skewed by the author's opinion. I want to be honest about my bias. I think, you know, I mentioned at the start, it would be uh, dishonorable of me to try and hide that. It'd be disingenuous to pretend that I'm legitimately neutral. But I want to offer that explanation up and then try to be fair from different angles before then offering my own opinions, my own conclusions. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed how you use uh, this different theoretical and ethical frameworks to uh, show us how those lenses and how those different viewpoints uh, you know, may lead to different outcomes. And I think, I think it leads for very uh, civil conversation when there's uh, the reason behind the reason, so to speak. Hmm. Um, and and I, I like the, the use of deontology, utilitarianism, and virtue ethics. Um, and you and I talked a little bit about this. As you know, I'm, I tend to be more, I want to kind of go deeper into the theory. Um, mm-hmm. This is my question on that. Walk us through how your choice of sort of using them, I wouldn't say maybe not, not interchangeably, but you're using them in different use cases, different ones. But my sense of it is they come from very different philosophers um, and very different sort of views of the nature of reality and how they got made to begin with. Um, do you find that it's important to recognize that, to sort of choose one, um, or is the hodgepodge of them sort of the path forward? I think at this stage, the hodgepodge is probably more useful just because it equips people with some ethical theory, right? It equips them with ways of thinking about the problem that they previously haven't had. There's so much moral intuition flying around and lots of reckons and, you know, well, I think this is wrong, but okay, how can you justify that? What are the frameworks by which you're making that value judgment? So that's why I was keen to just offer them up as lenses to begin with. There is definitely scope later on to say, okay, well, these actually reflect deeper philosophies in the, you know, in the in the proper sort of philosophical sense. And here are some of the origin stories of that. And then, you know, this one may be grounded in Protestantism. This one may be grounded in something else. Uh, 
there is a role for that. That probably, that for me would require uh, an actual philosopher. I think that's someone a real philosopher and a real ethicist should take up because it's beyond my knowledge and it's really beyond where I see myself being useful as well. But yes, I recognize there's perhaps a sort of intellectual unfairness or an intellectual paucity in in just throwing those things up and saying, well, okay, here are three ways to think about ethics without addressing some of their deeper uh, roots. I look forward to reading the books that do that, but it's probably not the book I write. <laughs> How important do you find that conversation in particular to something like artificial intelligence where those ideas are really coming into maybe perhaps our, our super intelligent uh, new, new overlords? Yeah, I for one welcome our artificially intelligent overlords. Well, there's there's a presumption that we should welcome them, um, which is not always shared. <laughs> I mean, obviously, these kind of discussions are important. Are you, are you referring specifically to the origin stories and going deeper in the, the roots of these philosophies, or are you referring now to the importance of the ethical discussion and the ethical lenses? Uh, the, the, the former, yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, when you take these paths of deontology or utilitarian mm. or virtue, you, you're implying a lot about what you think reality is and what you think a being is. And I, I you know, I've shared this, this worry with you that mm. I worry that the um, sort of use of them for practical or pragmatic purposes is diminishing their implications onto uh, our work and especially when we're talking about building smarter agents than us. Yeah. It's a fair uh, critique. Um, there are a number of almost ideological perspectives, I think, in the tech industry that are rooted in certain ways of seeing the world. Like I, you know, there, there's a, a strain of positivism that runs through the entire sector that sees everything in this kind of verificationist approach of, you know, the, the only thing that matters is that which can be verified to be true. Uh, which leads us to leads us to quantification and measurement, and leads us to assessment of a being that has to be you know numerical somehow or some you know some measurable property, which doesn't seem to allow for a, a emergence uh, in a way that a different perspective would. So yeah, I mean these are those are going to be important conversations to have. I'm also conscious that my contribution there should be minor compared to those of you know, real ethicists and real philosophers who are the ones looking at this uh, much more deeply. And also, of course, real technologists who are working with artificial intelligence and right on the forefront of, of that sort of stuff. And I won't claim to be. I have some understanding of it, but, you know, I'm not working with uh, these systems every day of my life. One of the nice things about this field, one of the things that excites me, is that it's almost like the early days of the experience design movement in that people have all these different backgrounds. We have, you know, philosophers and writers and artists and technologists and so on converging on this space. And I'm very, I'm wary of being some kind of ethical oracle or arbiter within that. I recognize, I think you're absolutely right that the, you know, the origin story and being able to talk about the perspectives through which or from which we see the world is so important that I should probably shut up and let those people air those perspectives rather than try to steer that conversation myself. That's one of the, th the nice things that's happening right now. It seems that there is uh, yeah. a, an emergence uh, of interest for the topic and, and there's quite a few practitioners coming into the theory but also theorists being welcomed into a technological uh, or discussion by, by technology peers. Mm. How, 
how much are you communicating or talking with the larger, let's say, design ethics or digital ethics community at large? Is there such a thing yet? Um, is it coalescing and are you, are you meeting other people and sharing a lot of ideas there? It's very nascent, but there is something happening there. Uh, again, in, in similar ways to the formation of the experience design movement, I think, there are a number of people who are recognizing that this is a shared interest, a shared passion. A number of people who are starting to read similar materials or uh, play around with similar ideas. There's not yet a coherent community of practice, um, even within countries, I would say, let alone globally. If I can help stimulate that and join the dots and introduce people, then that's one of the things I want to do, um, you know, this year and next. Um, I think it's going to come down to we're going to need some kind of um, you know, community platforms, they don't necessarily have to be technical, but, you know, they could be mailing lists, they could be Slack groups, they could be, you know, whatever it is. Informal meetups are happening across the world. I know there's an ethical tech meetup in New York. I think there's one in Boston. I've done a couple of little things in London to stimulate that, but I'll try and do something similar. And I think from experience, what tends to work well is when those little pockets of shared interests start to become more aware of each other, start to trade ideas speakers, writing, whatever it is, between those communities, that's when things really start to take off. So I think this is something that we all should be trying to do is foster that community. I'm particularly keen, actually, that the tech industry is a little bit more outward facing with this. Uh, I mean, of course, they should be because this is a societal issue. It's a socio-technical issue as much as it is a technical issue. But I think the tech industry is only going to make real headway on ethics when it starts to share what it's learning with other you know with other people in the industry i want microsoft to be talking openly about their work i want google to be doing the same i want facebook to be doing the same them to be learning from each other rather than seeing ethics as competitive advantage and therefore something that should be kept behind lock and key um it's so socially important now that we need to try and move together toward those goals in my opinion so yeah, the community is nascent. I have high hopes for it, but we're going to have to put the legwork in to connect those people, to share our successes and failures and so on. So that's probably the you know the job we have ahead of us in the next, I would say, 6, 12, 18 months. Thanks for that, Kenneth. I wanted to um, just ask a question that I, I admittedly comes from a very dark place. <laughs> Intriguing. Reading your book, I, I had a moment of, is this, is it all too late? Are we talking about ethics now in a sort of typical fashion for our species where we've already opened Pandora's box and let these forces out into the world? And it's only now after we've done that that we realize that we should have been taking more care and thinking about ethical terms. So tell me it's not too late, Kenneth, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, the ideal time to have had these discussions would have been 15 years ago. The second best time to have them is now. So... I don't think all is lost. I think there are some particular angles or components of ethics that we can look at, particularly around environments where we are headed for certain change. Let's put it that way. I don't believe we're headed necessarily for certain extinction or anything like that. I'm not a full alarmist, but clearly it's it's not too late to do something, but we have started too late for the change to be on the scale that it should have been. And yeah, probably the same is the case with you know, the broader tech ethics work that I'm focusing on. But I would be very hesitant to say, well, that, you know, the the demons are loose and, you know, there's nothing we can do because that's a deterministic 
perspective on the world, right? That's saying that technologies determine and shape societies. And they can do that, but we also have the power to make technologies, uh, you know, bend to our will. We are the ones creating them. Um, I'm reminded always of Sarah Connor, you know, that famed robot ethicist. And she says, you know, no fate but what we make. There are no set futures. There are only futures that we decide to make real. We're the ones who are in the position to get to decide what technologies do in the future. Uh, And if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be doing the jobs we do, right? We we would just think, well, technology is going to do whatever it does anyway. What's the point in me trying to steer that uh, discipline? So I like to remain hopeful. I like to think there are things we can do to try and create positive images of the future, positive images of technology in the future that can stimulate discussion and that can coalesce you know, people around that vision. I don't think we, I don't think we should be fatalistic. We should be realistic. However, things are going to get worse before they get better. But I do believe they will get better, except perhaps with climate that that may not get better for a very long time. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm grateful there are people focusing on that kind of work as well now. Uh, yeah, it's it it will not be easy. Ethics is always difficult and lonely um, work to do. I think that's been my experience of it anyway. So we will still meet resistance and we'll still find that things go horribly wrong in ways that we uh, should have anticipated far sooner. But the battle isn't lost yet. Uh, And even if it were, I think it would almost be the right ethical thing to do to continue with it regardless. Yeah, I think it's it's discussions like this that that make it all worthwhile. I mean, I think uh, I'm paraphrasing quite a bit. Um, Aristotle sort of talks about uh, there's no such thing as a moral genius when you're born uh, as maybe like a mathematical prodigy or mm-hmm. so on. So I think uh, I thank you so much for, for bringing this discussion because it is the kind of discussion that's needed for us to turn the corner around and, and all of us learn uh, what is it to be moral in, in the 21st century. Right. And I think Aristotle says, uh, you know, things like you become a liar player by playing the liar. You know, you become, uh, I don't know, a shipbuilder by building ships. So I I see morality, it's a muscle that needs exercise. It's not some abstract gift or some quality that just gets thrown at us. It's something we have to work towards and we have to pledge to take those decisions seriously. And as you say, hopefully these conversations are, you know, a step, a step in that direction. But, you know, that, that requires effort. It requires work and the occasional sacrifice and the occasional taking of risk. But how else will things change unless we do that? That's great. Kenneth, thank you so very much for being our very first guest on the Practically Abstract podcast. Hopefully we will have you back on. My pleasure. It's been great. I look forward to it. Thanks.